Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. Absolutely. Welcome back to the podcast, the official podcast for the study of the Founding Fathers and the Revolution, the founding of the United States of America, where TLDR does not apply and the study of history is a way of life, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to it. Thank you for joining me on this episode. It's great to have you back, especially for all you regular listeners of the podcast. Great to have you here. And as always, you know, the study of history, you know, being so important as it is, I think we can all agree on that, at least, you know, those of us who are still here on this uh, on this podcast. There's plenty of people out there who disagree with that. They think the study of history is something that could uh, just be ignored, uh, left in the ash heap of uh, history never to be seen or heard from again, because who needs to study history? Society is all about moving forward, after all, and we can't move forward if we're looking backwards, right? Have you ever heard anybody say that before? Those are probably the dumbest words I've ever heard anybody say, or pretty close to it. But uh, and on this podcast, we don't believe in that. We believe that to move forward, you have to look back and understand where you've been. If you don't know where you've been, it's hard to really tell where you're going. So we will be looking back at what the Founding Fathers were doing, as we always do. This is going to be another one of those episodes where we talk about the letters from our Founding Fathers, of course, as always. And this will be a feature-length episode. You know, as I'm as I'm looking through the the letters from our founding fathers, and I'm actually researching this information, it it never really gets old with me. I, I never get tired of studying the things that these these folks wrote and the ideas that they were trying to convey, not just to each other and to their friends and family, but also to future generations that would be reading their documents. Some people can get really bored with this stuff, but uh, I don't. And I think you know, I think society needs people around who don't get bored with this stuff. Because, you know, somebody's got to be able to carry the information forward, and that's, that's you folks who listen to this podcast. That's the, that's the mission that you have uh, for those of you who accept it. It's like, the, it's like the movie says, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to study this history and carry it forward and to be a messenger of sorts. And that's what we're going to do here on this, uh, this episode of the podcast, is continue to march forward carrying that message from history. In recent uh, episodes, I have, I have uh, commented that, you know, it's very good that we have the Constitution of the United States available to us. It really is. It's a great document. It has, uh, you know, stood the test of time for the most part. It's been under seemingly constant assault since it was, since it was ratified. It's not a perfect document, and if there are things, uh, there are things I would still change about it to this day. But, it, you know, it's a, it's a heck of a lot better than what a lot of other countries work with. A lot of other countries, you know, they, they might as well write their uh, rights and liberties and freedoms down on a on toilet paper because that's about what their rights and freedoms are worth in their in their respective countries. Not all countries, but a great many countries that is the case because they don't really take their freedom and liberty seriously. Never have, probably never will. But uh, in the United States, we think differently. There's a great many of us who do take these things seriously, and that's why we're here studying what the Founding Fathers wrote. Because you may get a little bit of exposure to what the Founding Fathers did in history class in the university or in high school, watching some documentaries about them and listening to some fly-by-night podcasts that really spend about, you know, 10 minutes talking about 1775, another 5 minutes talking about 1776, and about 25 minutes talking about everything between 1776 and 1787, and about 20 minutes talking about 1787, and so on. You get the idea. Here on this episode, you know, we have spent the last three months, more than three months at this point, I believe, really just talking about one year in the history of the uh, the founding fathers, 1774-1775, and we're still we're still we're still in that time period. Why? Why is this taking so long, Roman? For Pete's sake, why is it taking you so long to get through that? Because again, TLDR does not apply on this podcast. This is a comprehensive study of what the founding fathers did. And is it important to do a comprehensive, in-depth study? Yes, because there are going to be things that we talk about in these documents that you are not going to get anywhere else. At least not with any kind of efficiency. You'd probably have to read 40 different books on the Founding Fathers to be able to get this information. At least 40 books. I'm just ballparking it, but that's probably about accurate. You'd probably have to watch... There, there are not enough documentaries made about the Founding Fathers to capture all this information. You could watch every documentary ever made about the Founding Fathers, and you're still not going to get all this information that you're going to get on this podcast. It's not going to happen. 
And we, I, I got a pretty good episode lined up for you here today. We're going to talk about a very obscure document that almost nobody ever talks about. And that's the value of this podcast. Talking about the obscure documents that almost nobody ever talks about, but there are hidden gems inside these documents. Or more specifically on this episode, there are hidden gems inside of the response to that obscure document. John Adams specifically is going to lead the way in the response to that document, and some of the insights that he has are out of the... They are are pure John Adams, straight from the genius intellect that this man had. And we are going to listen to John Adams because he is going to be our guest on the podcast today, and we are very lucky to have John Adams join us live from 1774 on the podcast today. Let's do that right now. Yes, indeed. You know, I can, I can almost, um, I can almost feel that some folks who roll into the podcast, there's, there's a lot of folks who come into the podcast and they don't stick around. I can tell because of the numbers, and there's a number of reasons for that. One of the reasons is most definitely because they roll in here and they go like, "Oh my gosh, is this guy actually reading the letters from the founding fathers? That is, that is so boring." Or, or it's a, a case of, "Oh my gosh, is this guy actually still stuck in 1774 for the last three months?" Yes, yes we are. Um, and then Captain TLDR decides he doesn't want to continue listening to the podcast because of that. There are there are a lot of folks out there who just don't have the patience for this kind of stuff. So that's why I say, you know, to you folks out there who are uh, regular listeners to the podcast, you are you are very much a blessing to your country, um, wh- wherever it is that you're listening from. Could be the United States, could be somewhere else, because we do have international listeners to this podcast. I say you're a blessing to your country because, you know, you're willing to give your time and attention to the Founding Fathers. Not to me. It's not me that you're listening to as much as the Founding Fathers of the United States. You're willing to give your attention to them so that you can understand better the interaction between people and government so that you can be a better citizen, so that you can be a better individual within your country and function better and and, and better represent freedom and liberty and better guard freedom and liberty ensure that good government wins the day as opposed to bad government. Uh, you folks truly are a blessing to your countries, and I thank you for being here. It is the, it is a, it is very much a, a high honor for me to actually be able to be here with you folks. So thank you for that. So this document we're going to talk about today, it, it's, it's called A Friendly Address to All Reasonable Americans, and it was written by an individual in 1774. It was a pamphlet. And I'm not going to read you that document. It is a very, very lengthy document, and we are not going to go over that. You can thank me later. We're not going to go through it. I will summarize it for you in this. If you want to find it online, by the way, you can find it. But I, I will summarize it for you. It's The guy who wrote it is basically a shill for King George III and the Parliament, for, for lack of a better way of putting it. Some folks out there, historians, might disagree with me on that, but honestly, I've read uh, quite a few passages from that document, and my personal opinion is, is that he's a shill for King George III. And John Adams is going to tell us almost exactly as much in his writing on this particular subject. And he's basically saying in that pamphlet that, the in not so many words that the Americans, that is to say the colonists in America at the time, need to shut up and just go along with whatever the king wants to do. And if you want to complain about it, then do so quietly so as not to bother the tyrant dictator in Britain, King George III, and just kind of keep it to yourself. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this guy, this guy's a shill for King George III. And there's a lot of people like that. He's a, he's a loyalist, of course. And, uh, you know, I appreciate his sentiments. I appreciate that he, he took the time to write the pamphlet, but he's a, he's a hugely misguided individual. And what we're going to hear on this episode is John Adams' response to that man and his writing in that pamphlet. So let's get into that. Now, this, this, this response by John Adams, as I understand it, I don't know that this was ever published. The best accounts that I can find on this is that John Adams never published this, but this is in the documents uh, from John Adams' writings. He wrote this up and perhaps intended to publish it at some point, but maybe never got around to it, or maybe it was published and nobody ever found a published copy of it. But it is from John Adams. And John Adams made a habit of this in his lifetime of, of grabbing onto these pamphlets or these, these writings of other people and responding to it. He, this isn't the last time he does this. Uh, he does this uh, a few other times, at least in the future. And so let us begin. Again, we're talking from the time frame November 
of 1774. Quote, The character you give me from an English writer of our civil government will not be disputed by me. The British Constitution is, in theory, an excellent structure, and when wisely and justly administered, has produced as great and good men and as much happiness and glory to the nation as any form of civil polity ever yet reduced to practice among men excepting the commonwealths of Greece and Rome. Notwithstanding this, we ought always to remember that the nation have been more indebted for their prosperity in all periods of their history to the administration than to the Constitution, and that national happiness has never been their portion but when the administration has leaned to the democratical branch, as in the reign of Elizabeth, in the interregnum, and from the revolution to the commencement of the present reign, end quote. So he's talking about the structure of the, you know, the, what they what they saw as the, the Constitution, the British Constitution during this particular period of time. And he does make a comment that it has an, a, quote, excellent structure, end quote. So he's agreeing with the writer of that pamphlet that, yes, the British Constitution is an excellent structure. But it's not just the structure of the Constitution that matters. There's something else that really matters here. And what is that? Quote, we ought always to remember that the nation have been more indebted for their prosperity in all periods of their history to the administration than to the Constitution, end quote. You know, a few episodes ago, I made a comment that the Constitution does not wake up in the middle of the night, walking around Washington, D.C., smacking people upside the head with a rolled-up newspaper, making sure that they act all constitutional, whether they be senators, House representatives, Supreme Court justices, or a president of the United States. The Constitution does not patrol the streets in Washington, D.C., making sure that every Everybody is constitutional. That is just a paper document, and it, it's just there to remind us what our job and our responsibilities are. It's the administration of the government that the Constitution created that really matters as far as whether or not people are prosperous, happy, able to pursue happiness. Honestly, it doesn't matter whether people are happy or not. Again, I've talked about this before. You know, nobody has a right to happiness. If you think you have a right to happiness, you're, you're, you're wrong. You don't. You have absolutely zero right in this country, or any other for that matter, to happiness. You simply have the right to pursue happiness. But in order to do that, you have to have an administration of the Constitution, the government in other words, that doesn't so impede that that you can't you can't pursue it. And that happens in a great many countries. I've talked about a few of those countries before. You know, during the uh, the Tsar, the time of the Tsar in Russia before 1917, could people pursue happiness in Russia? Not really. Why? Because of that stupid government that they had. At the same time, however, people in the United States could pursue happiness. Why? Because they had a government that was operating on a very short leash called the Constitution. And the administration of that Constitution was, was fairly well done for the most part. There's always exceptions, but it was fairly well done. So he's talking about that. You know, you don't want to just look toward—the the author of that pamphlet was seemingly pointing towards the, the British Constitution as being wonderful and awesome— and so, what are you complaining about, kind of thing, right? Well, John Adams is saying, well, yeah, yeah, great, okay, the British Constitution is great, but what about the administration of it? And you could say the same thing of the United States today. That's why I like these writings from the Founding Fathers. They're timeless. Our American Constitution today is, quote, an excellent structure, end quote. Just like John Adams says here about the British Constitution. But it's, a, it's also the administration of that Constitution that matters. You can have the best-formed Constitution on the planet, but if it's poorly administered, then what does it matter? I mentioned before in a previous episode that, you know, there's a couple of ways that you can amend the Constitution. You can do it the legal way or you can do it the illegal way. And the illegal way is getting a majority of the House of Representatives, a majority of the Senate, a President of the United States, and five members of the Supreme Court to say, it's okay to do this. It could be as illegal as, as it gets. It could be outright criminal. But if you can get those people to agree on it, you can do it and you effectively amend the Constitution of the United States. That's poor administration. It happens, it has happened, and it probably will happen again, but it is poor administration. That's what John Adams is talking about. You can have that legal structure of the Constitution, but if you're not following it, then what's the point? Let's continue with what John Adams says here. Quote, For the same reason, I agree with my friendly addresser that those who reside in the American colonies have been far, have been by far the happiest and that were they sensible of their own advantages might still be so, meaning, by this, that they have it in their power, by a vigorous exertion of their abilities and a resolute practice of the great virtues of frugality, temperance, sobriety, 
courage, industry, and fortitude to resist the unrighteous claims of the British ministry and parliament, and to obtain a full restoration and a firm establishment of their ancient constitutions. But if the Americans should be so abandoned by all virtue and common sense as to give way to the pretensions of the ministry and parliament, never failing and never ending disgrace, misery, contempt, and infamy will be their portion to all ages. The blessings of peace and plenty to the benefits of an equitable and free constitution would not would be lost to them forever. The protection and patronage of the greatest maritime power in the world would be to them only the sure pledges of their servitude, and instead of contributing in, a, in but a small proportion to the support of the necessary public expenses, they may assure themselves that they will be made to pay as much more than any others as the members of the House of Commons are at a greater distance from them than from others, and having less feeling or fear for them than their neighbors and constituents, end quote. There's a lot in that paragraph, by the way. So we will take this apart a piece at a time. There's this, uh, it starts off with this, uh, this, this statement here, quote, I agree with my friendly addresser that those who reside in the American colonies have been by far the happiest, end quote. Yes. Uh, so th in other words, the people in the American colonies are, are fairly well content with their, their position in the world, their ability to make commerce, their ability to do business, their ability to work hard, and earn a living, their ability to enjoy the time with their families, build a build a life in the colonies, happiest. But how is that how is that accomplished? And how is that perpetuated in the future? Well he talks about that. Quote, a vigorous exertion of their abilities and a resolute practice of the great virtues of frugality, temperance, sobriety, courage, industry, and fortitude to resist the unrighteous claims of the British ministry and parliament and to obtain a full restoration and a firm establishment of their ancient constitutions, end quote. There's that word virtue again. I made a comment uh, a number of episodes. Keep track of the number of times you hear the Founding Fathers on this podcast use the word virtue. Why did I say that? Because they viewed it as fundamentally important. You cannot, cannot maintain your freedom and liberty without virtue. You can't. It's impossible. It will never happen. If you think it can, you're wrong. And in this writing, John Adams is going to demonstrate that you are wrong. We haven't even gotten to the best part of this thing yet. It's coming. And in multiple writings yet to come that we're going to talk about later on down the road, without virtue, you have nothing. So for all you folks listening in the United States, and for you, you folks uh, who are very welcome on this podcast listening from uh, countries around the world, keep that in mind. Virtue is very important. If you want freedom and liberty, if you want to establish some kind of freedom and liberty, a government oriented in that direction, you have to have virtue. And if anybody tells you you can do it without virtue, they are lying to you or they're delusional. And don't let people convince you that you can have any kind of freedom and liberty for any length of time without virtue. Again, you can live on borrowed time. Countries live on borrowed time all the, all the time throughout history. It happens. But eventually it, it just runs out. So you can survive for a little while on the virtues of the past, but that only lasts for a very brief time, relatively speaking. And after that virtue has been spent, it's all over. So what happens when you lose all the virtue? What happens when you lose this virtue? Well, John Adams tells you exactly what happens, and this is why John Adams is one of the best guests on this podcast we will ever have. This man's ability to sum something up in a very short sentiment is, is very valuable to us. Quote, But if the Americans should be so abandoned by all virtue and common sense as to give way to the pretensions of the ministry and parliament, never failing and never-ending disgrace, misery, contempt, and infamy will be their portion to all ages. The blessings of peace and plenty, the benefits of an equitable and free constitution, would be lost to them forever. End quote. Just think about that for a second. I'm going to say it one more time. Quote, The blessings of peace and plenty, the benefits of an equitable and free constitution, would be lost to them forever. End quote. Those should be some startling words. If that doesn't send a chill through you, when you really think about the consequences of it, you're probably not paying attention. John Adams is giving you a warning here, and he's telling you exactly what I just told you and what I've been telling you for many episodes and why, why I asked you to pay attention to that word virtue and why it's so important to the Founding Fathers. Why do they keep using it? Because if you don't have it, all of this is gone. It's all gone. 
And I'm not talking about false virtue. See, because virtue has been a very confusing thing in American society today. We have forgotten what virtue even is. That's how bad it has gotten. We forgot what virtue even is, the definition of it. We don't know what it is anymore. Well, some people don't. You might. I certainly know what virtue is by, by the definition of the Founding Fathers, because to understand what virtue the Founding Fathers are talking about, you have, to understood, you have to understand what they meant when they said virtue. What did they mean? Because that's the only thing that matters in the context of studying the Founding Fathers. What did they mean? Not what you mean, not what your grandmother means, not what your second cousin twice removed means, but what did the Founding Fathers mean when they said this? And I've answered that question before. And I, I answer it, you know, directly and indirectly. And one of the indirect ways I answer that is if you want to understand John Adams, you have to understand that he was a religious man. You cannot ever understand John Adams completely unless you understand that he was a very religious man. There will be historians who disagree with me on that. I don't care. They're wrong. And they're trying to deny reality. History is not what they want it to be. History is what it is. And John Adams is not who people want him to be some of the time. He just is who he is. And it may be the case that some historians don't want John Adams to be a religious man, but he was. And this will be proved in podcast episodes to come. It already has been, quite frankly. If you just go back and listen to the episodes, it's very clear. There's no ambiguity. It's just going to get more and more clear as we go. The resolution is going to get clearer and clearer as we go. So if you want to know what kind of virtue the Founding Fathers were talking about, that's what they're talking about. Not, not false virtue signaling like we see today, but real virtue. So if you want to maintain the Constitution of the United States, John Adams is telling you how to do it. He gave you the recipe. This is a small part of it, but this is, a, this is, a, this is very, very important. Quote, a vigorous exertion of their abilities and a resolute practice of the great virtues of frugality, temperance, sobriety, courage, industry, and fortitude, end quote. Does that sound like most people that you see in government these days? Like, think about the people who work in government. Think about the people who are in elected office in government. Do they sound like the kind of people that are governed by frugality, temperance, sobriety, courage, industry, and fortitude? I mean, just take frugality, for example. Does it does anything about the way the government is run today signal frugality? These people will spend a trillion dollars when they're bored on a Thursday afternoon, and for no other reason than they can, because they're trying to corrupt their way into more power, or they're trying to buy votes. Is that frugality? No. Courage? Is there anything courageous about these people? I don't know. In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. It depends on who you're talking about. Industry? Fortitude? I mean, all these things are sorely lacking in, in one form or another. So keep an eye on that. And the American people have trouble with this as well. And John Adams is telling you, he's giving you the recipe for maintaining, a, uh, administering a good constitution. And it's very important that we pay attention to that, I think. And, you know, at this particular time in 1774, John Adams, you know, we talked about a few episodes ago, John Adams, you know, lamenting some of the some of the atmosphere inside Boston during this period of time. The British agents that were uh, bringing all manner of kind of degenerate behavior into the, into, the, into the port of Boston. You'll have to go back a number of episodes to find that. I forget exactly which episode it was. It was one of the John Adams episodes. He was concerned about the impact of that on his, on his town of uh, Boston that he was working in. That's where his law practice was based out of in some regard. And, you know, his country of Massachusetts. And so he wants he wants Americans to stick to this concept of virtue that he the way he describes it here in order to maintain a good constitution and good government and a good society. So, you know, let those words ring through your mind when you think about this that, you know, the blessings of peace and plenty, the benefit of an equitable and free constitution would be lost to them forever. Be very careful with this stuff. This is very, very important. You know, these things, these decisions that we make in society, they have ramifications that echo through the ages. And John Adams is trying to tell you that. And in 1774, he was trying—that's why the Founding Fathers worked so hard. And in why, why in previous episodes I mentioned they are willing to stand up and get shot at to build a better nation because they want— to do exactly what John Adams is describing here, or at least prevent, you know, this, this negative that he's talking about. He wants the positive end of that. He wants Americans to be governed by a good structure, constitution, and he wants them to have these virtues that are necessary to maintain that, which is why the Founding Fathers worked so hard at this. And then there's this sentiment at the end that I find very interesting as well. Quote, In but a, a small proportion... To the support of the necessary public expenses, they may assure themselves that they will be made to pay as much more than any others 
as the members of the House of Commons are at a greater distance from them than from others, and have less feeling or fear for them than for their neighbors and constituents, end quote. I'm not particularly fond of the sentence structure here. It's kind of confusing unless you read it about five times. But basically what he's saying is that because the people in the colonies are so far removed from Parliament, if Parliament is allowed to ride roughshod over them and levy whatever taxes they please, the taxes on the colonies will always be greater than that in, like, say, Britain, for example, because, or at least eventually it'll get there, because the colonies are so far away and Parliament has less to worry about from them than they do the people in Britain. The people in Britain can always walk down to the Parliament and yell and scream at the, at the people in Parliament. The Americans in the colonies can't do that. Now, this gets us to another issue. Why do, you, why do you think the Founding Fathers, again, structured the government the way that they did, with the federal government and the state governments? The state governments being generally more powerful, that is to say they have more, they have more ability to govern the people through various laws than the federal government does. The federal government is typically, in the Constitution anyway, not so much anymore, but in the Constitution is very limited in what it can do. The state governments are much less limited, much less limited. The state governments really are not limited by very much in the Constitution. The Bill of Rights, a few other things, but other than that, the only thing that limits the state governments is their state constitutions. And why is it that the states are so given such free range in the Constitution? Because they're closer to the people. The federal government is so far away. It's really the same kind of thing. This thing that John Adams is describing here is very much similar to what the Briti what, what was going on with the colonies and the British Parliament. The colonists wanted to do a lot of their governing locally, and they wanted to try to keep it out of Parliament because it was so far away. The Founding Fathers created a federal system with state governments that largely have, have a lot of control over their, their respective populations because the states were closer to the people. The federal government is far away. So when we get into these arguments about trying to make everything a federal issue, let's just federalize every decision. Move it to Washington, D.C. Let's not do it in, in Utah. Let's not do it in Alaska. Let's not do it in Nebraska. Let's just move every decision to the federal government in Washington, D.C. That's a stupid, stupid idea. For the same reason that John Adams thought this was ridiculous in 1774. Because that, that parliament, that congress in Washington, D.C., is so far away from the people, geographically. Now, from the people in Maryland, it's not so far away. But from the people in California, it's real far away. And from the, for the people in Alaska, it's even further away. So they're less accountable to the people. The more power you give those people in Washington, D.C., the more power that they have, the more likely they are to abuse the people because they're not particularly close to the people. They're very distant. Even though they're made up of representatives of the people, seriously, how often do those people spend time amongst their constituents in their local district? Yeah, exactly. Not very much at all. Occasional town hall meeting here, town hall meeting there, but that's about it. They are very far away. Not just physically, but psychologically speaking, they're very far away. So it, it, you can see the you can see the the comparison to the British Parliament at the time. So John Adams is very much saying that this British Parliament that's so far away in Britain is very unaccountable to the people. You have to keep it close. You have to keep it local. And yes, that does have implications for today. Instead of trying to make everything a federal issue, keep it close. Keep it local. Keep it in the state. Keep it in the city, the county, as much as you possibly can. And if you're trying to make everything a federal issue, you're doing it wrong. Stop it. John Adams is basically broadcasting to you from 1774. Stop it. It's not just me saying that. Some folks, some folks think I just make this stuff up and that I, I just, I just come up with this random crap about uh, keeping things local and, and you know, re remove as much from the federal, from the federal, the general government as possible, and and remove it back to the states so that the people can be closer to the where people are closer to their government, they can make decisions a lot better. I think I just make this stuff up. I'm not. I get this stuff 100% from the founding fathers, really. So don't think I'm going off the farm here by saying that, um, you know, you know, you need to keep things more closer to the states. I'm not. I'm just echoing really what John Adams said. I'm just a messenger here. I listen to Mr. Adams and people like him, and I just I just expand upon that. I expand upon what they're saying, and I bring it I bring it up with a modern context. So let's continue with Mr. Adams here and his uh, fantastic analysis of this uh, this situation. So John Adams is going to quote the author of the pamphlet here. So this next quotation I'm going to read comes from the pamphlet, not from John Adams, but it's going to set up what John Adams' response is. So I'm going to read just briefly to you this quotation that he that he that he pulls from the pamphlet. Quote. 
If the supreme power of any kingdom or state, through want of due information or attention, should adopt measures that are wrong or oppressive, the subjects may complain and remonstrate against them in a respectful manner, but they are bound by the laws of heaven and earth not to behave undutifully, much more not to behave insolently and rebelliously, end quote. Again, the author of the pamphlet, that was not John Adams. John Adams is going to respond right now. Quote, this curious passage deserves to be taken into pieces and examined attentively. The supreme power of any kingdom or state is in the whole body of the people. The collective body of a people never did, and by the eternal laws of morality, as well as the indispensable obligations of the Christian religion, never can delegate to any magistrate or assembly an absolute, unlimited, and uncontrollable power over them. If they should attempt to do it by vote, or by a contact or covenant under hand and seal, or by oath, the vote, contract, and oath would be void, or else morality and religion must be void, end quote. Did you catch that? When I, when you remember, when I remember when I said you, you can't understand John Adams unless you understand he's a religious person, quote, as well as the indispensable obligations of the Christian religion, end quote. Does that settle this issue? I mean, if anybody ever questions that from here on out, you know, the uh, the fact that John Adams was a religious man, specifically that his virtues came from one place and one place only, which would be the Christian religion, by the way. I, I hope that those doubts are not an issue anymore. And and for those folks out there who have a problem with that, you know, you, you, can, you can depart the podcast at your earliest convenience if you so choose, if this offends you in some particular kind of way. But again, you know, it's it, it shouldn't offend anybody because it is what it is. Some folks just don't like to hear anything about religion ever. And some people don't like to hear especially anything about the Christian religion. It tends just the mention of it seems to offend certain people. I don't know why, but it does. But this is a very interesting sentiment by, by John Adams. Aside from the religious overtones of it, this, uh, this is a very, very important concept to grasp. And this is exactly why I say these obscure documents and these things that people never talk about in a history class in a university or in a college, for the most part, I'm sure this may be mentioned in some random class somewhere, but 99% of the people who go through the university system are never going to encounter anything like this from John Adams. That would be my, That would be the number that I would put to it. I could be a little bit off on that 99%, but honestly, I don't think I am. It's probably closer to 100%. I'll read that for, I'll read this one paragraph to you again. Quote, The supreme power of any kingdom or state is in the whole body of the people. The collective body of a people never did, and by the eternal laws of morality, as well as the indispensable obligations of the Christian religion, never can delegate to any magistrate or assembly an absolute, unlimited, and uncontrollable power over them. End quote. Wow. So if anybody try if any government tries to claim that you gave us this ability to, to for this uncontrollable power, you gave us this 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 ability by way of government to ride roughshod over you and to take your rights away, to suspend your rights and your liberties for some quote unquote emergency, that's complete and total crap. Especially if the laws or the constitution of your country are governed in whole or in part by the quote Christian religion, end quote. Now, some people will, again, get very offended at this, uh, the, the, the notion that the Constitution of the United States was, was framed in a, in a Christian context, but that's simply the way that it was. It, it very much was. You know, the laws of nature and of nature's God, where do you think these lines come from in places like the Declaration of Independence and the rest of it? But you, the, the government never has any justification or rationale for an unlimited or uncontrollable power over the people. Never, ever. John Adams is making that abundantly clear here. But he continues, quote, If they should attempt to do it by a vote or by a contract or covenant under hand and seal or by oath, the vote, contract, and oath would be void or else morality and religion must be void. Now there we go, right there. Do you see that right there? Because of the morality and religion of the Founding Fathers, what they're saying is, is that you can the King George III cannot have an absolute uncontrollable power over them. He can't. And neither can that parliament over there in Britain. And John Adams is putting his putting his drawing the line in the sand and saying, you can't go past this line. That his Christian religion, the Christian religion of the Founding Fathers, demands that there be some accountability and that the government cannot have an uncontrollable power over them. He's stating his fundamental rights. 
because the Parliament, by the Declaratory Act, which we've talked about before, essentially said that we can do whatever we want. We can go, we, we have full ability to legislate anything we darn well please. Many of the Founding Fathers took issue with this. Now, you know, let, let, let me look at this through a modern lens here really quick, because this is very striking. You could, I, I could spend an entire podcast episode just talking about this as far as the United States today. Because, and th this is something to pay attention to, because again, if you want to maintain freedom and liberty, you have to really understand how we got it in the first place, and what, what John Adams and the rest of these gentlemen, and women, frankly, from 1774 to 1776, what they, what they intended for us here in this country. I mean, what have we been trying so hard in the United States to do for the last 60 years? Has there been a movement to void religion and morality? As John Adams says here, quote, or else morality and religion must be void, end quote. So to lose that constitution, or more specifically, to give the government the ability to have uncontrollable power over you, morality and religion must be void. Okay. Have we been trying to do that in the United States for the last 60-some years? To void more morality and religion? And I would say the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Now, you know, and it's no wonder the whole time, during this time that I believe, and for those of you who disagree with and by the way, if you disagree with me, I want to hear from you. Uh, leave a review on the podcast and say, hey, episode number 38, I, I disagree with your sentiments that the United States for the last 60 years has been trying to void morality and religion, etc., etc., uh, and this is why, and so on and so forth. Okay, well, my, my retort to that, of course, would be, well, then why why on earth have they has there been this project underway to remove the Ten Commandments from courthouses all across the, the United States of America. Do you remember that? It started, I think, in the 90s, the 1990s, when they started pulling the Ten Commandments out of the courthouses. What is that? What's that all about? I would say that's a concerted effort, a systematic process of trying to void morality and religion from the country. Well, how else do you describe that? And you can agree with it or disagree with it. I'm not saying that, that you should agree with it or disagree with it. That's entirely your personal decision. You can say, well, that's a good thing. We should void morality and religion from the, from the United States. It should be voided. It should be removed, nullified, etc., etc. That That's a fine argument to make. But understand the consequences of that. Understand what John Adams is telling you here. He makes it, he makes an argument here that you, you do that and the game is over. Your freedom and your liberty, you might as well flush them down the toilet now, because that's what's going to happen when you void morality and religion. That's what he says. Now you can say John Adams is wrong. I totally disagree with that, and that's fine too. But it's hard to it's hard to deny that we are, in fact, engaged in a process of voiding morality and religion from the United States of America. For good or for bad. And if you believe it's good, okay. If you believe it's bad, okay. But again, understand the consequences. I'm not going to, on this particular podcast, on this episode, I am not going to argue whether it's good or whether it's bad. I'm not going to do that. And, you know, you combine that concept, you know, there's, there's, it's, it, these things, have, it's, it's almost like a, a symbiotic relationship between these two forces. At the same time that I argue the United States has been trying to void morality and religion, there's also this movement that I've talked about before of trying to make everything a federal issue. Remember that? People want to make everything a federal not everybody, but there's a bunch of people out there who want to try to make everything a federal issue instead of making it a state or local issue. If you want to, if you want to ban something, for example, people, people's instinctive reaction these days is to go to the federal government and say, please ban this across the entire country, instead of going to their state government and saying, let's ban this. And let's just ban it in this state. There has there there has been this turning in society where everything has to be a federal issue, and that is the that is the most destructive and reckless one of the most destructive and reckless forces I have ever seen in my entire life. And it's also incredibly stupid. But is it a coincidence that that is happening at the exact same time the United States is trying to void morality and religion? I don't think it's a coincidence. I think they go hand in hand. Because remember what I said about trying to make everything a federal issue. When you try to do that, you are begging the tyrant to come in and take control. You are begging for oppression. You are begging for despotism. Now, you may disagree with me on that, but that's my opinion. You are begging for it. You are practically on bended knee asking for the tyrant to come into your life and crush you when you try to make everything a federal issue. And I'm not saying that the federal government is tyrannical, but I'm saying when you try to centralize that much power in one place, what's the inevitable conclusion? There's only one inevitable conclusion to any of that, and it's tyranny. That's why the Founding Fathers tried to keep so much power out of the federal government. There's a reason for that. It's not an accident. It wasn't a careless mistake. It's deliberate. Because, you know, in that process to make everything a federal issue, what are you doing? You are basically 
setting up a situation where the government has, quote, unlimited and uncontrollable power over them, end quote. And by them, I mean the people of the United States. This is a very da- these are two very dangerous forces to combine together. The voiding of morality and religion and this push for, to make everything a federal issue. It is, it is basically a system of, of trying to get the government to have unlimited and uncontrollable power over the people. And does anybody think that's a good idea? You may not like morality and religion. You may be one of those people. You may have a problem with it, and that's fine. It's fine if you don't like it. There's nothing wrong with that. But... It's another thing entirely to try to scrub it entirely from society. Because according to John Adams here, doing that leads inevitably to this horrible thing that he's trying to avoid here. Be very cautious. Very, very cautious. And pay attention to what Mr. Adams is trying to say. This isn't me again. I'm not saying this. Some people are going to say, Oh, Roman, you're, you've gone too far. You're trying to make this a religious podcast, and you're trying to, you're trying to convey your religious sensibilities to, to everybody listening to your podcast. No, no, I'm not. I'm trying to convey Mr. Adams' religious sensibilities to the people on this podcast. I am just the messenger. This is not my message. This is the message of the Founding Fathers. And it's hard to dispute what I'm saying here is coming directly from John Adams. I am reframing it in a modern context, and I am bringing it up to date for 2022, but believe me, this is what John Adams is talking about. It's That's why I go to the source material, and I read these letters directly to you on this podcast so that you can't deny that this is what I'm talking about. And so that I can tell you that this is 100% not my message. It's John Adams' message. Now, I have a few opinions framed around that. Like, for example, we are indeed scrubbing or voiding morality and religion from the country. That's my opinion. That's not John Adams saying that because he's not here. He doesn't have the opportunity to say that. What I am saying, though, is his message is, if I'm right about that, if I am right about that, and I, I can make a strong case that I am, again, just look no further than removing the Ten Commandments from the courthouses. What do you call that? You can't call it anything else but voiding morality and religion, because that's what that is. Whether you think it's okay or a good thing or a bad thing, that, I'll leave that to you to decide. But that's what that is, 100%. There's nothing else that you can call that. If you call it anything else, you're just lying to yourself. So that's what's happening. And I'm telling you, when that happens, John Adams says that this is going to happen. Something very, very bad. And that's not my message, that's John Adams. So don't think I make this stuff up. Because I don't. I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried. I'm not that good. I'm not that smart. I'm not smart enough to put these pieces together. Only John Adams is smart enough for that. John Adams and people like him. A Benjamin Franklin, perhaps? A Samuel Adams? Those people are smart enough to do this, but I'm not. There's a reason why I read their... I could just do a podcast where I don't read letters from the Founding Fathers at all, and I simply just pontificate about this stuff all day long. But instead, I I read from the Founding Fathers because they are smarter than me. Frankly speaking, I believe that they're smarter than all of us. I believe that John Adams and Samuel Adams were the cream of the crop. They are, they are the best that this country will ever have. This country could this country could last for another thousand years. But John Adams and Samuel Adams and Benjamin Franklin, frankly speaking, will be the best that we will ever have. It's only downhill from there. And people may disagree with me on that, and that's fine. Every, like I said, gentlemen and reasonable people can always agree to disagree. That's the beauty of the United States of America. And it's something that we've lost, honestly. I've mentioned it a few times. You know, it used to be a time you could have, you know, you could you could live in a neighborhood with a bunch of people who have different political views than you, vote uh, vote a different way, and you know, you still get together on the weekends, have barbecue, and you talk to each other, and you just get along swimmingly. Reasonable people can disagree. I think we've lost a little bit about of that in this country. I think there's still some of it left, though. There's a lot of really good people still left in this country who who believe in that. That reasonable people can agree to disagree, and that's fine. And like I said, if you if you disagree with me or you have a comment, a question, suggestion, anything like that, leave a review on the podcast. And I'm not fishing for reviews reviews here, by the way. If you if you, if you think I care about the number of reviews that this podcast get, frankly speaking, I don't care because you know people who care about that care about ad revenue. Uh, it costs me money to do this podcast. It does. Not not make me money. It costs me a lot. It costs me a lot of time and a little bit of money to do this podcast. But I'm happy to do it because I think it's very important to talk about these things. And who else is talking about it? At least in this way. There's plenty of people talking about things around these issues, but not like this. And so when I say I want, I'd like you to re- leave a review on the podcast with comments and questions. It's really just to get interaction from you folks, and it's a free way to. It's a well, it's a no cost to you way to do it. But uh, Mr. Adams here is is making a very very good point. I think uh, he's really digging into it here. And he's really getting to the fundamentals, isn't he? I mean, just the fundamentals of the interactions between people and government, that relationship, and how important it is to maintain a good sense of what makes good government. And that's what we're aiming for on this podcast as much as anything else is what is good government? I made a podcast a little while ago, a few episodes ago, you know, what's good government? 
It was all it was all about good government. What is good government? How do we get there? And kind of contrasting that between good government and bad government. And that's what Mr. Adams is doing here as well. I'm really just following in the footsteps of Mr. Adams when I do stuff like that. So let's continue with what Mr. Adams has to say here. Quote, There are therefore certain fundamental laws and certain original rights reserved expressly or tacitly by every people in their first confederation in society. An erection of government. They constitute what is called a sovereign or supreme power or supreme legislative to manage their interests in common affairs of war and peace. But they reserve to themselves a right of judging when that supreme power answers the end of its institution and when it contravenes it, end quote. So what in the world is he saying here? Quote, they reserve to themselves a right of judging when that supreme power answers the end of its institution and when it contravenes it, end quote. You know, one of the things the author of that pamphlet that John Adams is responding to here, one of the things he tries to convey is that people really just need to shut up and not complain and really not even petition government. And if they do so, they must do so very humbly and very quietly and very subserviently, etc., etc. And it's not that John Adams is saying that people should be should do it in a disrespectful way, but he's just saying that they don't need to be so quiet and they don't need to be worried about offending the delicate sensibilities of the tyrant dictator, King George III. Because obviously King George III, like every other tyrant, is a very sensitive man. All tyrants and dictators are. They don't like to be talked about badly, they don't like to be offended, they don't like to be disrespected, and the reason for that is because they know they're doing something wrong. And when somebody challenges on them, it make, it challenges them on it, it makes them feel bad. And they don't like to feel bad. They like to feel like what they're doing is just and righteous. So they like to keep, they like to shut everybody up. And they like to make sure that nobody says anything bad about them. So that they can have this kind of moral authority to continue doing the terrible crap that they're doing. I mean, find a tyrannical government somewhere in the world that doesn't try to shut its people up. I mean, if you can find me a tyrannical government somewhere in the world that actually has a First Amendment like we have in the United States, I'd be shocked. The first thing they do is try to shut people up. You think you can say whatever you want to say in North Korea? Uh-uh. Nope. They don't have a First Amendment there. You think they have some First Amendment right in North Korea? No, they don't. Right to assemble, petition, freedom of the press? You think they have all? No, they don't have any of that. Why? Because they won't, they won't, they won't tolerate it. They won't have, the government won't tolerate it. So John Adams is basically replying to this guy saying, okay, you're telling, you're telling us we need to shut up and not petition the government? Well, I'll tell you what, you know, go pound sand, Poindexter. I'll say whatever I want and I have a right to say it. Don't you tell me to shut up. So if anybody ever tells you, again, that you don't have the right to question the, the dictates of the government, whether they're good dictates or bad dictates, and we can get into an argument about what's good and what's bad, every government has dictates. But what John Adams is saying is here is that you have a right to speak up about it. Quote, they reserve to themselves a right of judging when that supreme power answers the end of its institution and when it contravenes it, end quote. They have a right of judging the supreme power. So you... The individual person living in your country, whatever country that is, you have a right to judge the supreme power, to question it. You have a right as a human being with a voice. Now, I would say most often you can do that respectfully. Sometimes you have to get loud about it. Otherwise, they don't listen to you. Have any of you ever tried to call your congressman or senator? If you have, then you know what I'm talking about. They don't tend to listen to you. I mean, not really. They'll say they do. Their staff will. Thank you for your opinion. I'll pass that along, which is basically code word for shut up and go away, by the way. Uh, they, have a whole, they have a whole, you know... People who work in a political office, they have a code all their own. And believe me when I tell you this, more often than not, not all the time, but most of the time, when, when somebody, when if you call like one of your elected representative's offices and their staff says, thank you for your opinion, we'll pass that along, that's them saying, shut up, now go away. Just trust me on that one. Just, I mean, it's an, it's, that's my opinion. It is an opinion after all, but I'm saying it's prob I'm probably right about that. So, um, you know, John Adams is very clear here. Make sure, you know, make sure people are aware they have a right to question these things. Let us continue. Quote, My friend has made a distinction which makes him inconsistent with himself and involves him in absurdities. His distinction is between respectful remonstrances and complaints and undutiful ones, and between both and insolent and rebellious ones. He allows that respectful complaints and remonstrances may be made against wrong or oppressive measures adopted by the supreme power through want of information or attention. But I presume... He must mean that these remonstrances and complaints must be by the devout heart offered up to God in prayers and tears, prius et lacrima, not made to the supreme power itself, because that complaints and remonstrances, even petitions themselves, may be thought by the supreme power to be disrespectful, insolent, and rebellious. 
The very supposition that must be here made is disrespectful, undutiful. The supposition that the supreme power has done or can do anything that is wrong or oppressive. That the, the supposition that the supreme power has been inattentive or wanted information is also disrespectful and undutiful. For the supreme power can do no wrong. The supreme power is supposed, as far as respects the society, to be omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and perfectly wise, just, and good. However, our friend has admitted, and he cannot go back, that the supreme power is not om omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, or perfectly wise, just, and good, because he has expressly admitted that it may want information and attention, and that it may adopt wrong and oppressive measures, end quote. That's kind of a long section, but what is he saying here? He's again reinforcing this concept that the author of the pamphlet is contradicting himself. You know, on the one hand, that there may be some mistake made by the central power, which justifies quote, respectful remonstrances and complaints, end quote. But at the same time, you know, th these these complaints can't be disrespectful. But, you know, John Adams, I think it's a kind of sarcasm here at the end of this, uh, at the end of this paragraph, where he says, quote, the very supposition that must be here made is disrespectful, undutiful. The supposition that the supreme power has done or can do anything that is wrong or oppressive, end quote. Basically saying that you, the supreme power, the central power may think that any complaint that it is doing something wrong is disrespectful or rebellious, basically. Seditious. So how is one, how is someone to say anything about what the supreme power is doing? If the supreme power is so delicate as to get offended and think that things are rebellious and seditious just because somebody's complaining. You know, and that the, you know, the, the author of that pamphlet makes some kind of an argument that the supreme power is, as, as John Adams puts it here, quote, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and perfectly wise, just and good, end quote. In other words, that the, the supreme power is basically perfect in some particular, in some particular way, unfa infallible, would be a way to, way to describe that. And John Adams is saying quite to the contrary that it, it's not infallible, and that the, the author of the article you know, on the one hand says that the supreme power is, you know, basically perfectly wise, but on the other hand says that the supreme power may do something wrong and the people can complain about it, but they must do so in some kind of particular way as to not upset the delicate sensibilities of the central power. Very convoluted and complicated. And John Adams is making the point there that this is very convoluted, this argument that you're making. You, you can't you can't be you can't be saying that you know the supreme power is so wise and perfect you know and has some authority by nature and heaven to do all these things um but at the same time saying that they could do something wrong and you can complain about it but you can't really do it loudly you could you only you can only do it quietly so on and so forth keep it to yourself in other words you can complain but keep it to yourself and what's the point let us continue quote now if the supreme power may want inf information I would ask him how much information it may want. May it want all degrees of information? May it in times of general depravity and dissipation be grossly ignorant? May it neglect to study the geography of the country, the agriculture, arts, manufactures, and commerce of the nation? May it be so debilitated by debauchery as to be incapable of acquiring knowledge and judging of it? If it may want attention, how much attention may it want? May it not be filled up of jockeys and gamblers who never read or think? May it not become incapable of that laborious study and deep meditation which is necessary to comprehend the complicated affairs of a great empire? May it not become so incapable of attention as to make it a rule never to judge of measures, any further than to inquire whether they are recommended by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, or by the minister of the House of Commons, end quote. So he's basically saying, so the, you know, the, the idea here from the, from the author of the pamphlet was that the, again, in contradicting himself, he said that, you know, the supreme power, the central power, as I would say, may make mistakes because they want for information. In other words, they have insufficient information. And John Adams is making a point, how bad can this get? If they want for information, could it be so bad that it that it causes so many problems that the, the, the basically the country the empire doesn't even work anymore quote may it be so debilitated by debauchery as to be incapable of acquiring knowledge and of judging it end quote and again quote may it not be filled up of jockeys and gamblers who never read nor think may it not become incapable of that laborious study and deep meditation which is necessary to comprehend the complicated affairs of a great empire end quote and john adams is saying if if basically if if this is true if they can be for want of information and all these problems can manifest themselves shouldn't somebody say something don't the people have some right to have an opinion about that if their affairs are so poorly handled by the administration if their affairs are 
so poorly handled by the central power? Shouldn't they speak up and say something about it? Shouldn't they try to draw attention to the issue? Don't they have some right in that regard? And of course they do. Absolutely. And this is a problem in every government. This want of information is a problem in every single government that ever existed. These people think they're geniuses, especially people who are elected to office. You know, there are so few of those elected offices, especially on a federal level. There's only, again, there's only 535 congressmen and senators. That's not a lot of people. These people, and, and there's only one president of the United States, and there's only nine Supreme Court justices. These people really do, in many cases, think that they are geniuses because they are simply there. When you occupy a position that only nine people in the entire country of 320 million people hold, you probably think you're some kind of genius. And the same thing if you're only one of 535 people in a country of 320 million people, you probably think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And you're so arrogant that you probably want for information like what John Adams is saying here. Just like the King of England may want for information. This the, the King, King George III thought so highly of himself. You know, what counsel did he need? I mean, he probably listened to this, you know, the constant, the same, the same counsel from the same, you know, degenerate lunatics his entire life. And he never sought counsel from anybody in the colonies, I, w I, would, I would probably think, at all. Because he thought, you know, he's better than them. He's better, he's, he's above it. Just like many, many people in Washington, D.C. think they are above the, the people of the United States. Again, try calling your congressman. Tell them your opinion about something. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll let you know how they feel about that one way or another. You are, you are really nothing to these people, like a King George III, you know, in 1774. I mean, why do you, so many of the petitions of the, of the people in the colonies were just ignored by this guy? Because he was just having nothing to do with it. He was set down a course and he was going to do it no matter what. No matter how badly it hurt the empire, he didn't care because he wasn't really paying much attention to it. And it is possible for people in government to be so ignorant and so lacking in information of, what, of what's really going on that they can't quote, comprehend the complicated affairs of a great empire, end quote. So John Adams was saying that's when the people need to be able to say something. And King George III, the problem was he wasn't listening. And neither was Parliament. They just simply weren't listening, despite what the, the colonists were trying to accomplish. Again, they tried very hard to send messages to the king and send messages to the Parliament, basically. Just broadcast what they were thinking, what they were feeling, trying to work something out, but nobody was listening on the other end. Well, there were some people who were listening, but unfortunately they were so few in number, it didn't matter. There were good people in London at this time, friends of the colonies, but they, their voice was so quiet, they, they couldn't, they couldn't, there was so few of them, they couldn't do anything. So that's that. And that is the entire dot. Well, there's another paragraph at the very end I'm not going to read. And again, this is from the writings of John Adams, you know, addressing this, uh, this document, a friendly address to all reasonable Americans, which really wasn't, uh, I mean, I'm sure it was friendly, but, um, it was really just, it, it was just a loyalist trying to make his point. And I don't have a problem with that. He had every right to write that pamphlet, by the way. And I'm, it's a good thing that he did because it got John Adams thinking. And because this guy wrote this pamphlet that was basically just shilling for the King of England, John Adams wrote this wonderful document that we get to study and we get to, we get to go into the mind of John Adams on this subject. So I would not just thank John Adams for writing his response to this pamphlet, but I would, even though I totally disagree with this, the guy who wrote that pamphlet, and so does John Adams, by the way. I'm very glad he wrote it. I am very glad that he wrote it. Because otherwise, we may not have heard some of these ideas come out of John Adams in this writing. So it's very valuable. Very good stuff. And I, I hope that you enjoyed that and you got something out of that. I hope it tells you a little bit about how John Adams felt about government and, the, again, that relationship between people and government. And how these things all work. And how do you get good government? How do you administer a good constitution? So I'm going to wrap this up in my concluding remarks in the next section. Let's go there right now. All right. Well, you know, as obscure as that document was, that pamphlet that was written, I think it really did spur a good conversation, certainly some good thoughts from our, our good friend, Mr. Adams. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to actually go back and listen to what Mr. Adams had to say. And I'm glad that uh, we could have him on the podcast here, as always. Great guest on the podcast, as I like to say. And I feel like I, every time I read John Adams, I feel like I learn something. Uh, there, there's, you know, for the most part, there's there's something to be learned uh, from Mr. Adams, just about anything that he writes of substance. Now, some of the things he writes are fairly uh, fairly small and relatively insignificant. I ran across a, um, a, a diary entry of John Adams that I'll read to you, just as kind of bonus material for this episode. And it has to do with his birthday. And it's very, it's just one of those things I just notice and I, I, I think to myself, that's interesting. Quote, my birthday. I am 39 years of age. Rode to Elizabethtown in New Jersey, where we are to dine. 
rode down to Elizabethtown Point, and put our carriage and all our horses into two ferry boats, sailed or rather rode six miles to a point on Staten Island where we stopped and went into a tavern, got to Holes in New York about 10 o'clock at night, end quote. That was it. Not a lot of fanfare. Uh, I just find it interesting. He just, he just comments very, very dryly. My birthday, I'm 39 years old. And that was on October 30th of 1774, by the way. So if you ever wanted to know when to celebrate John Adams' birthday, October 30th is your day. It, it almost fell on what we would celebrate today as Halloween, um, which would be the day after. But um, if you wanted an extra excuse to party like it's 1774, uh, there you go. October 30th is your day. <laughs> I'm <laughs> kind of joking on. I doubt anybody's going to take me up on that one, but uh, uh, party at party at your own uh, at your own uh, discretion. So, thank you for joining me on this episode. It was great to talk about that document. I think there's good things to learn in there. I mean, sometimes even just in the simplest documents and the simplest writings, there there's there's some great thoughts that are conveyed from the founding fathers that really inform. Not just what was going on at the time, but also everything that has happened since then. These these concepts are timeless because there will always be people and there will always be government. And the relationship between those people and that government is hugely important in how a society conducts itself. And who better to learn from than Mr. Adams? You know, very few people are responsible for, for helping to build a new government, especially one that led, a government that led to one of the most powerful, most successful nations in the history of the world. So there's just, there's always going to be something to learn from this stuff. I don't, I don't care who you are. There's always going to be something to learn. So that closes us out for this episode. Again, thank you for joining me, and I, I will look forward to the next episode of the podcast. I hope you will all join me there so we can study some more of this stuff together and listen to the message from the Founding Fathers and what they had to say. And with all that said, this is Roman signing out. Thank you. <laughs>